The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and also to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we talk to Antonio Zaldivar de Alba, a teacher and research assistant at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He'll be talking about wind engineering and provide our listeners with three great benefits that they can get by joining ASCE's Structural Engineering Institute, or SEI. I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. I'm a licensed engineer at DCI Engineers, practicing on structural engineering projects in California with an undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's degree in structural engineering from UC San Diego. And I'm your co-host, Alexis Clark. I work in Hilti's North American headquarters as the product manager of our chemical anchoring portfolio in the U.S. and Canada. I'm a licensed professional engineer in Texas, and I graduated with an undergraduate degree in civil engineering from UT Austin. Before we introduce our guest, we'd like to let you know that the Engineering Management Institute recently launched another podcast, the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, which can be found at geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com. This podcast will be focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with the latest technical trends in the field. The host is award-winning geotechnical leader, Jared Green, a licensed professional engineer who's been practicing as a geotechnical engineer for 20 years. You can find all of the episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And you can request guest topics and ideas at geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com. Also, if you've listened to past episodes of the Structural Engineering Channel, you know we've had many guests referred to us by the ASCE Structural Engineering Institute, also known as SEI. We consider them a friend of the podcast, and Alexis and I are both SEI members. We'd like to take a moment here to share an update that we received from SEI. I'm Laura Champion, the director of the Structural Engineering Institute at the American Society of Civil Engineers, which is commonly referred to as SEI. I want to thank everyone at the Engineering Management Institute for giving me this opportunity to tell you about SEI and how we have successfully pivoted to the new virtual world. SEI is one of the nine institutes within ASCE, with 30,000 plus members making up 20% of the total ASCE membership. Our membership includes students, practitioners working for private and public clients for all types of structures, not just buildings and bridges. Also researchers, academics, and public servants from over 100 countries. In recent months, SEI has transitioned fully from in-person meetings and conferences to virtual events. SEI was especially challenged when our annual Congress had to be canceled just three weeks prior to our annual in-person event due to prohibition on large group meetings. Quickly, SEI pivoted and created a Structures 2020 virtual event that was held on April 7th as a way to engage our community, even though the in-person event to be held that same day was canceled. Programs needed to be developed so SEI could keep our members engaged in their communities since all in-person meetings have been canceled for 2020. Virtual meetings, one advantage is that more members can participate and listen, 
since traveling time and costs may have prohibited them from attending an in-person meeting, but not a virtual meeting. This includes our codes and standards and division technical meetings. One new program is a monthly Instagram live chat on current and hot topics, such as working remotely and diversity and equity and inclusion in our profession. We also just held the first session of a four-part series on a career path being hosted by SEI President Glenville via Zoom meeting. The next session topic is starting out entry level to project engineer on August 18th. This series includes live chat between our hosts and invited guests with questions from attendees. A new event that SEI is participating in is the ASE Virtual Technical Conferences, powered by all the ASE institutes and is being held the week of September 14th. This first multi-institute conference will include live chats and Q&A and will also have a virtual exhibit hall. This year, the ASC Annual Convention has also transformed into a virtual event being held from October 28th through the 30th, where SCI will be presenting on our new program, Cross US, Confidential Reporting on Structural Safety in the United States. All these new virtual events are now open for registration. Consider joining SCI and ASC so you can get the full member benefit value of these programs and much more. Thank you again and visit SEI's webpage to learn how SEI has metamorphosized into the virtual world. Stay safe and hope to see you in person sometime in the near future or at one of our virtual meetings. I'd now like to introduce our guest for this episode. Antonio Zaldivar de Alba is a structural engineering PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He believes that we, structural engineering professionals, should seek innovative solutions to make infrastructure safer and more resilient. He is working with Professor Franklin T. Lombardo at the Wind Engineering Research Laboratory to develop novel wind engineering instruments that will improve the current knowledge of wind storms and their effects on structures. His research focuses on understanding and modeling thunderstorm-generated wind loads. His work was recognized by multiple organizations, including the American Association of Wind Engineering, he also received recently the 2020 OH Amon Fellowship in Structural Engineering awarded by ASCE and SEI to encourage the creation of new knowledge in structural design and construction. He holds a civil engineering bachelor's degree from ITESM Querétaro and a structural engineering master's degree from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. His goal is to save lives via infrastructure improvements and motivate young generations to get into engineering. Now, let's jump into our conversation with Antonio. Antonio, welcome to the Structural Engineering Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I understand that you are a teacher and a research assistant at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. What subjects are you teaching there, and what is it that you research? My teaching assistant responsibilities actually are mainly grading and holding office hours. I do teach sometimes when the professor is not available. He either travels for a conference or has a meetings. That's when I step up and teach. I have been a teaching assistant, sorry, for Steel Structures 1. 
that is basically an undergrad course uh, where the students learn the basics of the structural design of the steel members. Basically, we teach them how to design members, uh, steel members for t by tension, flexure, compression, compression, and then we end with a combination of loading, basically compression and flexure or tension and flexure, and that's uh, what we cover in the steel structures mm -hmm. one. Also, I had experience being teaching assistant of wind engineering, but it's uh, basically my area of research. And this course was actually developed by my advisor, Professor Frank Lombardo at the University of Illinois. And this is mainly an introduction of the basics of wind engineering. Additionally to that, this last spring, I was the teaching assistant for the structural engineering seminar series at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And this course, we just invite distinguished structural engineering speakers from both the academia and the industry to come to, over to the University of Illinois and give a talk to our student body. And basically, my main responsibility in this course is just uh, making announcements and making everything that runs smoothly and making sure the presentation is set when the speaker has water and basically not teaching responsibilities. And regarding my research um, assistant job, I've been working with Professor Frank Lombardo for now, I think, three and a half years. And I have been involved in, in several research projects. But now what I'm working on is... Actually, on the development of novel wind engineering instruments to capture information from extreme wind events. And actually, this project uh, was recently funded by NIST as part of the Disaster Resilience Grant. So, yeah, this is uh, basically overall what uh, my teaching assistants and research assistants' responsibilities involve in, at the University of Illinois. From your working in engineering, I kind of see like the research or the effects of your research, you know, like the wind loads, but could you go into wind engineering, I guess, 101 for people that aren't too familiar, particularly in wind engineering and how all those things come into play? Actually, yeah, wind engineering will always have kind of the trouble of being related with, with only wind energy. Obviously, that's not true for structural engineers because you deal with the AC7 wind loads, so you know that at least wind load structures. But... Really, the wind engineering, kind of the dictionary definition, it's a discipline concerned with the effects of the wind on the natural and built environment. So both the natural and built. And as you can guess from this definition, it's a truly diverse uh, subject that requires knowledge in many different fields or disciplines. And just to give you an example for my research, I uh, need to know a little bit about fluid mechanics, statistics, meteorology, uh, signal processing, and obviously structural engineering. We also deal, like, especially with loads in buildings, and there are, even within that, specifically of load, uh, buildings loads for wind, there are specific areas uh, of research, such as bridge loading, that is completely different, uh, how you manage a bridge, how you design a bridge for wind, than how you design a low-rise building, for example, where you, the load is more static, right? And also, when you have high-rise buildings, where you have issues of vortex shedding and some type of vortex that can generate, and the, usually the natural frequency of the high-rise buildings stay more or less in within the bounds that can be really affected by wind. Usually, the taller you go, the more important wind is for your structures. We deal with uh, many different things. Another research area in the wind engineering field is uh, obviously wind energy, but also we deal with pedestrian comfort for urban areas, some pollutant dispersion, obviously wind lo loading of buildings. And so it's an extremely diverse field. I just want like kind of to highlight that, that there are many different fields within the wind engineering field. Where is it that is really your area of focus or what brought you to be so passionate about wind engineering? So actually I became passionate about wind engineering thanks to Professor Frank Lombardo, that it's a, he's a prof assistant professor at the University of Illinois. 
I started doing research with him on thunderstorm loading. And my main research is on how thunderstorm winds affect differently structures because they have different characteristics as the normal wind that we design for. Yeah, that's what, how I became passionate about wind engineering. I started like to look at the loads in low-rise buildings uh, using real actual data. And you can see the random nature, not only of the wind, but also the pressures. And you deal with the statistics, extreme value analysis, and many other tools that you need in order to kind of do this research right. I'm from mainland in like internal Texas, central Texas, and uh, I've never really been concerned about hurricane winds by any means, but I've seen my fair share of a good Midwestern thunderstorm. I grew up kind of curious about how that affected buildings. Is there something from your past that got you interested specifically in thunderstorm winds? Not really. I was just mainly doing my master's degree at the University of Illinois. I was planning on doing a, just a professional master's that is only coursework. And then in, at the University of Illinois, you have the opportunity to do independent research as part of your coursework. So this independent research entails that you just contact a professor and you, instead of a course, you actually do research in his area. And kind of it's like a course slash research where you kind of go a little deeper into the research area. And then I started doing that like a, as part of my coursework. And I said, okay, I really like this. Like, I really like what I'm doing. I'm solving like challenging problems or trying to solve them, right? <laughs> because that's how research goes. Sometimes you don't, <laughs> you don't quite find the answer, but that's what got me interested. And then I started working more and, and I always loved structural engineering as a kid because my dad was a structural engineer. That was my path towards wind engineering, kind of love structural engineering. And then met Professor Franklin Bardo, and then he, I leaned towards wind engineering with him because I enjoy work, working with him and, and the topic that I was working was super interesting to me. So just final to wrap up this topic of thunderstorm winds, what role do you see that thunderstorm winds plays in structural engineering design? Actually, that's a topic of current research. Um, for example, currently in ASC 7 the design wind speeds take into consideration thunderstorm winds. What do I mean with this? When you see the map on ASC 7 and you see the design wind speeds for different levels of, for different return periods, these wind speeds are already considering that the thunderstorm winds come from a different distribution than normal winds. Because thunderstorm winds are generated from storms, they follow a different distribution than the what we call like normal winds of atmospheric boundary layer winds, the ones that we design. So this is already taken into consideration. What actually you do is you develop two different extreme value distributions, and then you take the one that it's controlling. In a lot of parts of the US, the thunderstorm winds are the one that control the design wind speeds for uh, long return periods. We are actually designing for wind speeds that we're able to uh, reach using with thunderstorms. The thing is that we don't know how to design for them because these winds have different characteristics as normal winds. The winds that we design for, uh, we usually use a, a boundary layer wind tunnel that the objective of this tunnel is to simulate the atmospheric boundary layer. And what's the atmospheric boundary layer? Basically, you have that the wind speed increases with height. So you have lower wind speeds closer to the ground and higher wind speeds uh, upper. But this doesn't happen in many cases in during thunderstorm winds. Sometimes during thunderstorm winds, you can have the highest wind speeds a little bit closer to the ground, like for example, in the order of 10 meters. Uh, so this is a fundamentally different from normal wind that we design for. Other differences are like in thunderstorm winds, sometimes you can have a vertical component because you know sometimes these storms called dampers that impact the ground 
and then you generate these vortices that can generate a vertical component of the wind, which has been shown to be important for the roof pressures or suctions. They are fundamentally different. And the thing is, okay, we are considering the, the wind speeds from thunderstorms already in the design wind speeds, but really in the load part, uh, we don't know how these thunderstorm winds load the structure differently. And that's kind of part of my research. If they do, right, we, we don't know, we are trying to assess the difference between thunderstorm winds and normal winds, the ones that were already have everything in the design. We have wonder layer wind tunnels to design for, for this type of winds. But I'm really looking, there are some differences with uh, thunderstorm winds. In your assessment of these differences between the two types of wind, how is it that you're collecting information about how these winds act? And then how are you modeling it when you're doing different types of research? There are different research, actually, approach to this thunderstorm wind load. One is using CFD simulations that basically use fluid mechanics equations and uh, to simulate the, the dampers and how it affects the structures. And the second one is actually using modified wind tunnels, where they actually try to simulate better the characteristics of thunderstorms, such that they add uh, some additional things to the boundary layer wind tunnel in order to replicate some of the characteristics of thunderstorm winds. And then they get data using a model of the loading. And what I'm trying to do is actually get actual data from full-scale events in order to validate these CFD wind tunnel methods, because as of now, there are really few studies that we, that we actually have full-scale data from thunderstorm wind. This is obviously challenging because thunderstorm winds, as you can imagine, they are locally, they're especially and temporally small. So they happen in a matter of like minutes and they are not as big as, a, as an atmospheric boundary layer event where you have several kilometers of high winds. So it's really hard to capture them. And that's why at the University of Illinois, we're developing some new instrumentation that is fully mobile, such that we can uh, have a higher probability of capturing this, this type of events. My approach is basically getting full-scale data of loading and wind characteristics for these events, such that we can actually validate what we're doing with CFD and wind tunnels. Probably not solving everything, but kind of have a benchmark desk or something like that, kind of provide that data set that people can relate to when they want to validate their models. So in wind tunnels and the way that we usually design per code, that usually just takes into account like high winds, but thunderstorms, they basically behave differently, right? And it looks like that's what you're kind of trying to figure out. How do these thunderstorms behave? How do they affect the loading? And even in a wind tunnel, that's not how a thunderstorm behaves. So you're trying to find ways in your research through instrumentation to trying to find out how to best simulate thunderstorm wind conditions and even in the wind tunnel, right? Could you go into kind of what the, the instrumentation looks like? That, that seems pretty interesting. Like, how are you guys capturing that data? Is it, what, do you have a truck that records the wind speeds? Or, yeah, how are you guys even trying to do that? Like, what's the process? This is part of the, obviously, this is led by Professor Frank Lombardo at the Wind Engineering Research Laboratory at the University of Illinois. And we are basically working now in two novel instruments that can capture these extreme winds. The first one is a portable loading cube, and the second one is a strain-based anemometer. So talking about the, the first one, the portable loading cube. This is a four-foot cube that it's able to capture pressure in 126 points throughout the cube. So they are distributed symmetrically throughout the cube. And it's a pretty small cube, right? It's not the size of a low-rise building. But the objective of this cube is to be fully mobile. Actually, you can put it in a truck and just ride with it. And 
it runs on batteries, so you can deploy it and then it runs by itself. You don't need to connect it to power. And yeah, it's really fast to deploy. Like we can deploy it in less than 10 minutes. And this is in order to be able to put it in the spot. We think that the likelihood of the wind of high winds is higher, or actually thunderstorm wind is higher. So we need to deploy it fast and it has to be again fully mobile. It runs on batteries. And actually now we're just finishing an article that we plan to submit to the Journal of Wind Engineering and Industrial Aerodynamics, where we prove the validity of this uh, portable loading cube, meaning that, okay, it's a four foot uh, cube, right? What we're proving here is that this uh, bluff body, that it's a small cube, actually behaves as larger full scale low rise, low -rise building, kind of in the order of uh, three meters uh, to 18.3 meters, sorry for the SI units there. Um, oh, yeah, so 10 feet to 50 feet? Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, so that we're trying to prove that like this actually, although it's not this, uh, the same height, it can behave as a full scale, so therefore we can get valuable data using this cube, and that's the first part of the instrumentation. You're saying mobile, so does that mean you take that cube model and go into a thunderstorm? Yeah. So you're like a storm chaser, like Twister, that movie, <laughs> where they're chasing thunderstorms. Yeah, we try to capture thunderstorms. The professor has a lot of experience. Uh, he used to chase tornadoes for his research. Obviously, within the safety of, of research, right? We're not chasing tornadoes for this research. We're just chasing thunderstorms because we try to capture uh, high winds. And also, we try to be fast deployable. And also, the cube has uh, some hours, like five hours of data collection. So it's not that we're putting the cube and next 40 minutes, high winds are going to come. We have some a leeway to work, to work such that everybody is perfectly safe and nothing happens, right? Part of the research team, we have a Zach Weinhoff from, he did his master's in atmospheric sciences and he now switched to master in structural engineering. He finished his atmospheric science master's and now he switched gears to structural engineering and he knows way too much about a storm. So he's kind of the lead that tells us where to go and what is the best spot to be in. We're trying to capture these events. We, we need to be close to them. The second part of the instrumentation is just a strain-based anemometer. Actually, this is being developed by other of my colleagues. His name is Justin Neville. This is just a perforated sphere in a, a, that it's sitting on a steel rod. Basically, the perforated sphere serves as the drag element, basically what it's receiving the wind force. And then the steel rod is the one that measures, uh, serves as the sensing element that is measuring the strain. And then by doing just a back calculation, you can relate the, the force in the rod to the wind speed. This is completely developed by, by him and Professor Lombardo, so, so I don't know much about that anemometer, but I, I know the basics, and that's kind of the tool. But you depend on these other colleagues. I imagine they're in like a meteorology department? Yeah, Zach is, was in the meteorology. He was actually doing a PhD in meteorology, but he switched gears to structural engineering when he met also Professor Frank Lombardo. So I think he's enjoying a lot of the group and he has a lot of experience in atmospheric sciences, but he's doing now in a master's in structural engineering. And yeah, we have a lot of different expertise within the group. We are now six people in the group. So we have more people to lean towards the wind speed estimation, some of us more leaning towards the loading structures like me. But yeah, we have, we have a really nice group there at the University of Illinois. And, and Really a lot of, uh, as you can see, because to deploy these instruments, you need a group of people that's able to go and actually deploy. So collaboration within the group is, is amazing. You need to, to have a really good group of researchers. And they become friends, so really good friends of mine. It's a good experience. 
I think there's a lot of instructional engineers who maybe feel like they're in a structural engineering bubble because we don't have the exposure to work with people from different backgrounds academically. And so I think it's really cool that you get the opportunity to work with an atmospheric scientist and someone who has a background in meteorology. That's really unique. And I think that's one of the benefits of maybe going back into an academic setting for those who are considering doing so. I think that's one of the clear benefits is having that breadth of exposure to so many different backgrounds that helps you be a better engineer and a better researcher because you get that exposure. And you understand some of the issues that they deal with that they may be completely different that you are dealing with. So maybe they get some data that it's important for them, that it's not that important for us, and we're not getting some data that is important for them. So it's kind of, once you start talking, you realize that we could do a lot of collaboration together and, and get actually data that matters for both of us. Any examples of that? Uh, yeah, for example, we're mostly interested in the wind high frequency content. And for some of the fluxes research, they only, we have a professor that is doing some flux research in the University of Illinois. And actually, we were planning on using his tower, but at the beginning, they had the setup of uh, not recording the high frequency content of wind, which are were like mainly interested in. They were basically recording everything, I mean, by minutes wind speed. It's useful for us, but not as useful for our research. So that's kind of, once you start talking, you realize, okay, maybe we can store more data for your research that will be able to help you more in your research. And that type of stuff is kind of helpful. Everybody in the same project has their own objectives and you have to make sure everybody gets what they need out of the situation. So that's awesome. The academics isn't so different to practice. Either way, you're going to be working in teams and everyone has their own goals, but then you guys need each other to um, reach your goals, but being aware of what the other team needs in terms of what their goals are. Yeah, I think it's applicable to the real world. (laughs) That's actually comforting because... Once you're doing a PhD, one of your like kind of worries is that you're missing a lot in the because I don't have any experience. For example, I have really few experience working in the professional. So I always feel like all my colleagues that are already graduating from master, like yeah, they're already like moving up in the you know in the industry, and I'm still like <laughs> in the same place where I. Antonio, we're going to do a really quick pivot. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your expertise about wind engineering and thunderstorm winds and all of these crazy instruments that you're getting to work with. I want to pivot to an article that you wrote for ASCE Structural Engineering Institute, or SEI, about why engineering students should join SEI. From what we understand, there are three main benefits that you believe everyone can enjoy when they join SEI. The first one is free membership and scholarship. Can you explain what this means to our listeners and why is that important? Thank you so much. Yeah, actually, I wrote the article because I wanted uh, graduate students to realize the great things SEI has to offer. You know, like sometimes in grad school, you just come to coursework and, and you just leave, right? But, uh, but as you can imagine, being a graduate student is a constant struggle for money. So it's not uh, that easy to get money. So the fact that SEI student membership is for free, I think it's a huge deal for graduate students. And most of them don't know because they're just like even... From undergrad, I have this experience where the ASC chapter charged them some membership, like $10 or $20, just to raise funds for their chapter in the under, in their, wherever they went to undergrad. And they come to University of Illinois, and then they think that STI also costs some money, right, to join. But thanks to the support that we have at the University of Illinois, our graduate student chapter of SCI, we just allow every structural engineering student to join without any, any fees, because we have that support from, from the faculty of the structural engineering group. 
But also, even if you don't want to join a, the graduate student chapter, SEI membership is for free, which is, I think, huge because you don't have to waste, you don't have to spend any money that you already, like, don't have it much. And they give you a magazine and obviously all the benefits of being an SEI member. That uh, It's kind of, you get a monthly magazine, the structured magazine, which is, has great articles. You can just read and get, starting to get involved with the practice and what actually is happening in, in the structural engineering world. And also you have discounts in webinar conference and the possibility to apply to scholarships, which is actually, I think, really important. I just was lucky enough to get and honored enough to get the SEI OH among research fellowships. That is one of the fellowships that SEI and ASE give to students. And this was a huge support for me, especially now in the end of my PhD. Um, allows me to concentrate on my research project. And also, it's open for every SEI student member. So, and again, scholarships to go to the structured conference. Just for free, you get all these benefits that really, I don't see any reason why not to join and start to be more involved in the structural union community as a student. A lot of students don't know that there's scholarships. It's free money for the most part. And especially if you're doing research or getting more into it. Looking for as much scholarships as you can, that's something that I wish I would have done. It would have saved me a lot of money. I was like, oh man, I could have had a couple thousand dollars here and there if I would just applied. And now being in these uh, membership organizations, all these organizations want to give you money, but sometimes you just don't have enough applicants to give it away. So it's a great opportunity to get scholarships. And you mentioned Structures Congress, and I think that's your second point in the article. Could you go into what the benefits of students going to the Structures Congress is or for what you meant by that point? I've been to Structures Conference, I think, twice already. And I think it's an amazing experience, especially for students, because first, obviously, you get what everybody gets, right? Great presentations, uh, get like networking opportunities. That just by the fact of going to a Structures Congress, you're going to get Specifically for students, they also have a, a lot of activities that help you get, start to, to get involved in this in the community, such as the event. I don't know if you're familiar with Meet the Leaders event, that it's a kind of a breakfast. But it's I think it's a great event. I have attended all times that I, I've been. In that event, you get to sit with a really well-known kind of leaders of the structural engineering field, and you're just a student, and you you get to meet them, ask them questions, uh, just interact with them, and see what their thoughts are and that it's a great opportunity that people sometimes are not familiar with, that by attending the structural congress, you can do this part of, or actually interact. They facilitate interaction with, with other professionals because you say like, okay, yeah, I'm going to the congress, but maybe I'm not sure if I'm going to approach like somebody because I don't know, like I don't want to bother them. But SEI creates this opportunity where they encourage interaction. So it's easier even for like introverts or to just talk and meet people and start that conversation. And once you start, you realize that it's not that hard. You know, we're all human, we all make mistakes. So, and I think SEI that has a great, great part of that. Another part that they have specifically for the students is the career fair. I think it's mostly at the end of the, the Congress where you, they have several companies that are looking to hire and then the students can go and just have their resume and talk to the recruiters. Obviously that's an opportunity that you don't, never want to miss as an uh, as an student. You know, if you're looking for a job, uh, just go to the structure congress. Probably you can meet uh, people while in the congress and then go to the career fair and, and take advantage of that. Another thing that it's a lot of fun, not specifically towards students, but is the structural union party that it's usually hosted by CSI, which I think it's a great way of meeting people and it's a lot of fun. 
it's always, I don't know, these interactions that really we need to grow our network and, and actually find resources and everything, I think just is great. And SEI provides a great uh, kind of setup for this, in my opinion. I'm like the cheerleader for Structures Congress. I absolutely love it. Um, this upcoming May or March will be my fourth Structures Congress. I love the event. And I think you made such a good point in that whether you're a, a new structural engineering student, whether you we want to go into practice or stay in academia, whether you find yourself to be an extrovert who is ambitious and wants to meet people and network, or if you're an introvert and you're just there to learn, there's so many different things, so many benefits to going. Um, of course, number one is that there's the opportunity to learn from other engineers. and no one goes into engineering and expects that you leave school and know everything, right? Like we always, we're continuously learning. That's why we have PDHs and continuing education credits. It's because we should always be interested to know what's the newest research, what are the newest trends, what are the best design practices. And I think the other exciting thing is that if you do intend to stay in academia, getting your foot in the door by meeting with different researchers at Structures Congress actually gives you a better leg up if in the future you want to submit an abstract to present yourself, which is such a validating uh, accreditation to have to your name to say, yeah, I presented at Structures Congress my research. And it can provide you more opportunities down the way if that's the case. The amount of opportunities they make specifically for younger engineers are by far and the way better and stronger than any other conference they've been to. If our listeners are, are tuning in and remember Ann Ellis from a few uh, episodes back, Anne is like my dream career for an engineer. When I and the, I met her at the Younger Members Meet the Leaders breakfast. And whether or not you want to be them or you just want to learn from them, I kind of think of this as like a little mini masterclass for those uh, younger engineers who are interested in meeting the experts. I mean, if anyone's watched a masterclass, you can listen to Bob Iger, who is the CEO of Disney, tell you all about the way he sets up his routine and his career and you get a one-on-one -on -one personal interaction with the Bob Igers of structural engineering. And I had the opportunity to meet Anne there since that meeting. I mean, she's been a champion for me. She's brought me into different committees. She's gotten me um, different opportunities because she saw where my ambitions lied and she had the, the ability and the connections to make it happen. So it is so critical that you don't just show up. You take part in all of those different opportunities to interact because it's a catalyst to getting you to the next level or getting you to the next opportunity that you, you think you want to participate in. So I couldn't agree more. The last and third item that you wanted to share with everybody that benefit is the Graduate Student Chapters Leadership Council. I have no idea what that is. What is that benefit? And what's the benefit of being part of this kind of a council? What is it? This is for me extremely important point. To be part of the Graduate Student Chapter Leadership Council, you first have to be part of a Graduate Student Chapter. So SEI now has, uh, we currently have 18 universities that have SEI graduate student chapters in the U.S. So University of Illinois is one of them. At Urbana-Champaign and actually at Chicago, they also have a, a chapter, and Notre Dame and several other universities. First, the opportunity of being in a graduate student chapter, it's obviously dealing with uh, people and having the opportunity to have uh, leadership roles within the, your chapter, your small chapter, you know, and, and actually impact the graduate student uh, community in your school. We organize events uh, for students, such as social events and academic events, professional events, where we bring professionals to talk to the students and actually more geared towards a student interest. And yeah, you get the opportunity of organizing events, uh, meeting people, being in leadership roles, kind of lead an organization. The second part is that you get the opportunity to be in this graduate student chapter leadership council, that this leadership council is kind of the council that involves all the graduate student chapters in SEI. 
actually they have a representative within this council and this council has a board. The board consists of four students from different universities. And what we're trying to do is kind of connect these old graduate student chapters together such that uh, kind of start interactions within the graduate student chapters and start collaborations, kind of start to build a network of SEI graduate student chapters, kind of a, as an overall organization. And obviously being part of that gives you the opportunity of meeting people from other universities that are actually interested in leadership roles and are actually students that are uh, looking forward for the opportunities. So it's really good to meet that kind of people, that the people that get involved in this leadership council. And also gives you, I've been the chair of this council for two years uh, now, and my term is going to end this uh, September. But this gave me the opportunity of meeting a lot of people, being in charge of uh, this organization, and the opportunity to go to the SEI Local Leader Conference. That it's a small conference that the SEI organized for their leaders, graduate student chapters, and professional chapters leaders, where they just give us leadership training, and then you can meet all the other leaders from the professional level and from the student, a graduate student chapter level, which is also great because you, you get to meet people with all different kinds of backgrounds, people that have learned many things that you are trying to learn or that you know that give you advice on where to move, where to look. And it, I think it's just great. Is being involved with the graduate student chapters and the leadership council gives you a lot of different tools that that you wouldn't get otherwise, like communication skills. You can imagine that me having, I'm from Mexico, so my first language is Spanish. I always had a little bit of trouble speaking English. So after I started to get more involved in the graduate student chapter, interacting with other students, although my English is not perfect, it improved a lot. <laughs> so, and just things like that, you know, it's interacting with other students and being able to meet a lot of people. It's kind of the, the main thing. Your English is nothing short of perfect. I think it's been really fantastic. And the ability to communicate really technical topics in an eloquent fashion as you have in a second language is incredibly difficult. So I commend you and anyone, honestly, who is not a native English speaker who comes to the U.S. to, to study a really scary topic like thunderstorm implications on structural engineering is that's a level of bravery and courage that I think we all could admire. That's fantastic. Antonio, I had one last question since you know, you're going the PhD route, for people that are considering the PhD route, do you have any advice or maybe go through what it's like being a PhD student? Because that's something I've always wondered too, what the PhD is like going that route, what's it like? Do you have any uh, advice for people or can you go more into that, what it's like being a PhD student? As I mentioned before, I struggled with when I was making the decision to go for a PhD route. Basically, I think there are two Truly important things for deciding to go for a PhD. You have to really love what you're doing, enjoy research a lot. Because if you don't love it, you are not going to get through PhD. Like, I think that's true for a lot of things in life. You have to enjoy what you're doing, but in PhD, like, you're going to give up if, if you're not really enjoying what you're doing. And also, I think the relationship with your advisor is crucial, in my opinion, because your advisor is the one that is guiding you towards like this shady topic that you're just really don't know much and you're starting to explore and your advisor is the one that gives you the guides. And if you have a good relationship with him, it's really good, which I have. And I think that's essential for a PhD. Then how to weigh down if doing a PhD or a master's degree, that's that's actually something that I don't know because I, I'm not sure if I, I made the right decision, but I'm happy where I am. I do feel that the PhD work has given me more, a more analytical mindset and strategies to solve uh, some difficult problems that I'm sure you can also get in industry. But I had the opportunity to deal with challenging problems every day. 
I want to share a little personal story with you that made me actually decide to get a PhD. And basically, they were three things that made me decide to pursue a PhD. The first one is what, that I really enjoy what I was working on, on research, and I really enjoy working with Professor Lombardo, my advisor. And this is really important, as I mentioned before. The second is that I had the opportunity to do a PhD in a really top structural engineering university, such as the University of Illinois. And while doing the PhD has given me the opportunity of doing really advanced courses, for example, in seismic steel design or other topics that are not specifically related to my research, but I am interested on as a, and that I think that can help me when I'm, again, a practicing engineer. And three, it was actually an advice from my dad, and it's, I don't know, uh, who is actually a structural engineer himself with a master's degree. And what he told me, it's just an analogy that it may work for you or not, but he told me, if you look four years from now, you will have no experience and a PhD, which is probably not as good as having a master's degree with four years of experience. But if you look 14 years from now, you will have a PhD with 10 years of experience instead of a master's degree with 14 years of experience. The difference on experience will not be that great. What you will learn with your PhD can give you a lot of tools that you can use towards that experience and also the prestige and the, and the, the PhD is basically forever. So if you have the opportunity to do it now, he just encouraged me to do it because basically he told me in the long run, he's going to pay off. And that was, again, his view. I don't know if it will help you. And this is my experience, but I just wanted to share that with you. And yeah, that's what made me excited to go to for the PhD. I think we should all be told an anecdote like that all the time, because especially when you're younger, something about the beginning of the cusp of your 20s, you think if you don't start now, you're going to miss something. I don't know if it's a FOMO culture kind of thing. And if I invest my time to do something else, like take a gap year and go travel and, and see things that you want to do before you settle down and start in practice or getting something like a master's or PhD, what's going to be the difference? Am I going to be two years for a master? Am I going to be two years behind my colleagues? And when you put it in perspective of in 20 years, you will have had the additional accolade or the additional um, academic experience and the experience of years, it's, it almost doesn't matter because the magnitude is so similar. I think that's a really great mindset to think about these, these different ways we want to invest our time is in 10 years, in 15 years, what's going to be the difference? And is the difference enough for you to want to go do this or not? So that's really helpful. I think it was a good reminder for me, if nothing else, I, I could use that perspective more often. <laughs> Yeah, PhD is forever and, you know, whatever you're investing your time into, it's going to last forever. Like, no one can take that away from you once you get it. That was great. I'm not taking anything wrong because I have also that only do their master's because they don't want to do a PhD. And that's also okay. Not taking nothing away from them. But yeah, just the fact that if you're really enjoying what you're doing in research and you truly enjoy and truly want to get a PhD because you're enjoying what you're doing and want to learn more, I think taking that perspective of like, a long-term perspective is, is helpful when you're feeling like, oh yeah, everybody's getting ahead of me. And having that long-term perspective was what helped me decide that, okay, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I want to do this and it's not going to be that bad, you know? And that's what helped me, the advice from my dad. When I first graduated from college, I had an objective. I wanted, you know, I found this fantastic job at Hilti, but I wanted to be living in a German-speaking country as soon as possible. And in my mind, if I hadn't gotten there, if I didn't get there by 25 or 26, I was clearly behind in my career path and I wasn't doing things right or I, would, I wasn't succeeding and meeting those different objectives I wanted to. And when you read a book, I don't know if any, if any of our listeners have read this, but Defining Decade is a really fantastic read by Meg Jay. 
about the fact that your 20s are a really intense time of your life in which your brain is still developing until you're 25, your your prefrontal cortexes, your decision-making capabilities. And she talks about the differences in your 20s and your 30s and those who spend their 20s doing nothing but um, self-serving or I want to say activities that don't necessarily lead to professional and personal development who then start those activities when they're in their 30s have lost a decade that often gets you is the catalyst to getting you to where you want to be when you're 30 and 40 and 50 and everything else. I felt when I didn't reach my first goal at 25 of being of living in Germany, I thought that I was behind and it's not going to happen for me until I'm in my 30s at this point. I just think it's so interesting because if someone had told me at 23 it's okay to spend seven, eight, 10 years developing yourself and, and spending the time to do activities here that are going to make the experience so much better when you get there. I would have thought of it completely different. And I think the same is for your PhD. You found this passion in wind engineering. And if you hadn't spent the additional four years to get your PhD, would you be enjoying your practice that much more in 10 years, in 15 years, without that information that you so wanted to go and learn more about? If there's anyone out there who is, confused or is, is trying to figure out whether you should or should not do something, it's worth the patience and investment of time to make sure that you do achieve those things that you want to, but be patient with your schedule. So especially our young listeners, you don't have to set the world on fire by 25 or 30. And it's okay if it if some of those things really come to fruition later in life. Something I wish I had told my younger self. Antonio, how can our listeners benefit from your research and where is it that they connect with you? So hopefully they will benefit from my research once it's uh, done and published actually in AS7 as a wind load to design for against thunderstorms. But as of now, we publish most, some of the outcome of our research on our, at our research website and at Twitter. So for our research website, you can just Google wind engineering at UIUC and it should be the first thing, thing that pops up. That's the research website. You can also find my contact information there, like my email at illinois.edu. I'm not going to try to spell it because if you go there and you see it, you're going to see why I'm not trying to do that. <laughs> and also in the Twitter, we publish a lot of kind of short summaries of what we do. Sometimes when we find interesting stuff in the field, uh, because we also do some damage surveys or interesting stuff in the research, we do publish in, in Twitter that the handle is at windlab, uh, windlab in, in Twitter. So uh, I think you can find it. And you can connect uh, with me through LinkedIn or really send me an email. And I also do have a Twitter account that it's at Saldivar, my last name. 1991, because it's my year of birth. So that's what I post also, so a lot of uh, my things with the research and wind engineering stuff related. So to LinkedIn, you can email me. Feel free to mail me if you have any questions or uh, you want to share something. Or Thank you so much again for having me here. And I really enjoy talking to you guys. Thanks so much, Antonio. We really appreciate you coming on. It's always fascinating for me to kind of hear you know, where all our code stuff comes from and how they even come up with all the, the things in the code. and for you talking about wind engineering, it's uh, I really appreciated it. I never knew that about thunderstorms, and it's always fascinating to see that there's still so much out there in structural engineering. So thanks so much for that and for giving all the great advice that you gave to graduate students and people that are looking to become a PhD or go the PhD route. So thanks again. Thanks to you, Matt, and thanks, Alexis. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. 
There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 30. As well, you can find links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And also, don't forget to check out EMI's newest podcast, the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, which can be found at geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com. And also make sure to refer this to your geotechnical colleagues as well. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.